Once again, we welcome you all this morning to Horizon. We're glad you're here. And at this time, if you can clear the center aisle and please welcome our very own Chad Hoven. five bucks. I didn't fall right there. There it was. We are starting a brand new series today called Hurdles. And uh, I was uh, actually a 110 high hurdler in high school. And a long time. We set those low. I remember my first track meet. I was a freshman and I had been training for the 110 highs. And my coach comes up to me right after the meet. He says, do you mind running the 300 intermediates? I thought, well, how hard can it be? It's a lot lower, right? I never run a 300. I'm a sprinter, not a distance guy, and that's right in between. So I start running, and I take off going the 100-meter pace, and I am blasting everybody away, clearing these things one after another after another, and I hit the wall at 150 yards. And it's like, you know, oh, oh. And all of a sudden, everybody is starting to catch up over me and these hurdles that seem so low are suddenly a hundred miles in the air and I'm coming up into every single one of them like tripping over them and falling and this happened to be the one year that my parents had just bought a video camera I'm not showing it but I watched later as I'm coming down that last hundred yard stretch and oh, I looked horrible, death warmed over, falling over it. I come in totally last, crash on the ground. I look backwards and I thought, I am never going to do that again. Thank you guys for the chariot of fire, by the way. We are in a series called Hurdles and you know, we do not have delusions that we're going to eliminate your hurdles to belief in God, the Bible or Jesus. But what we are hoping is to help lower them enough that you could clear them. I don't know anyone, person of faith, skeptic, unconvinced or otherwise, who doesn't have questions about the problem of evil or this difficult Bible passage or what happened or why God doesn't answer prayer. We all have those. And sometimes you think you've lowered them, you think you've cleared them on a hundred yard dash, but then you have a long term illness and things that you thought you'd clear suddenly on a longer run are much, much more difficult for you. So we want to help lower some hurdles by engaging in some honest dialogue together. I got a chance to sit next to uh, Bill Nye's publicist about six months ago. And while we were sitting together, Bill Nye was in town, and he said, I'm a reasonable man looking for reasonable answers to reasonable questions. And yet he was asked in that uh, dialogue, you know, how did you get the universe out of nothing? And he said, well, it's a great mystery. And I said, well, you know, it is a great mystery, but... As we're exploring these questions together, and today we're looking at, is God unscientific? I think we need to, as people of faith and skeptics, come together and ask questions. In fact, I often thought it would be fun. What if today you had a dialogue or a debate between Bill Nye and, say, Sir Isaac Newton, who's a, a Christ follower and the father of mathematics and physics? And what would it look like if the debate was, say, an epic rap battle? Let's watch what the fuck? Bill, no. What's up? Isaac Newton! Begin! 
Of all the scientific minds in history They put Peter in a bow tie up against me I'm a master, I discovered gravity I drop rhymes like I fell from an apple tree You don't match on me, you got a bass degree I got a unit of force named after me You want a battle, guys? That's a crazy notion When I start going, I say in motion First of did you catch that? Or did it go too fast to the fast? Perhaps it'd be better if I added in a bleep Or a blue for another wacky sound effect I was born on Christmas, I'm John's gift I unlocked the stars that you're dancing with You waste time debating creationists While I create the science, you explain your kids what I used to do is teach kids science on my PBS show. Now I do what I gotta do to make sure science every talk can grow. I'm feeling my prime, hitting my stride. What'd you do with the back of your line? You freaked out, started counting points in the bank, and you sure didn't have no wife. Oh, you wrote a book on gravity, but you could not track nobody. Do work on orbits with exemplary, but your circle of friends was shoddy. Oh, you don't wanna mess with the guy Bill Don. I rap sharp like a needle in your arm. I'll stick to drinking that mercury, cause I hypothesize that you're about to get beat. Well, I conclude that you're a method of a whack. You wouldn't even pass in one of my Reaction. Except for when we both start rapping. I accelerated the minds of mankind to a higher plane of understanding. And I can't calculate the weight and the size and the shape or the shadow of the mind you're standing in. And that will leave you with a page from a book I wrote at half your age three. But the injured will be white, white, from zero to one fifth of five, five of eight. Three other four of the three. Number sixty-four power of one. Why don't you pick on the brain your own side? Hating planets every fly. Daggers and lodges and hiding up inside his attic on some Harry Potter business. The universe is infinite, but this battle is finished. All right, well, there you go. That battle's been going on for years. It's been going on for uh, a lot of time of people saying, you know, what is the truth? What are the facts? And so with us today is a friend I've met over the last couple of weeks. We've been emailing back and forth. And I'd like you to give a warm horizon welcome to my friend Matt. We welcome him to the stage. Hey man, welcome! Great to have you with us today. Appreciate it. Grab a seat. Well, Matt, let's start off. Uh, it's always fun to have a pastor and, a, and an atheist in the same uh, room, and nobody's fighting, nobody's rapping against each other, uh, nobody's calling each other's names. Nope. And I thought it was funny because we've been emailing what. 20, 30 back and forth? About two or three weeks now. We've been hot on the reply button the same day with these big, long responses. It's been great. And Matt has just had some of the best questions, toughest questions, and we've just been enjoying uh, that dialogue together. Um, and I asked you, because we've been doing email exchange, I said, I don't know your last name. I just know you as your email. So I said, well, Matt, what is your last name so I can introduce you? And I thought, I don't want to say that because it would be worth, this is Matt... Good pastor. Good pastor, Matt. Good pastor. For this uh, today. Don't laugh. So uh, I'll be uh, Hoven Heresy or uh, Chad the Pagan or whatever you want. Um, now tell us a little bit about what, what brought you to the place of uh, being an atheist. Okay. Well, first I'd like to give a quick definition of atheism because I know the term uh, carries a lot of negative baggage. All it is is a response to the claim that a god exists. It's a negative response. Anything outside of that, it's it's something else added to atheism. Uh, so. We don't have any central doctrine or authority, basically. Uh, it's, it's Richard Dawkins compared us to like herding cats. I could probably agree with 90% of you on most political issues. Um, so with that said... On Richard Dawkins real quick, I've always thought that if he grew up in Alabama versus England, he wouldn't get as much of a hearing. You know, because he's probably evolution not. is so important versus... Evolution is so great. <laughs> I've always thought Dawkins' accent really helps. The him, accent so. helps. And, uh, he seems like a cute guy when he, when he uses it. He does. Yeah. Evolution. Go ahead. Um, so anyway, uh, to your question, what brought me here? Growing up, uh, I had always been a bit of a critical thinker. Uh, arguments from authority were never good enough. If, if somebody had to finish 
uh, a command with I told you so left me unsatisfied. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was pretty much a non-denominational Christian growing up. Religion was never really forced upon me. Uh, and I did a lot of independent reading of the Bible, got some good things out of it uh, every now and then. When I became an adult, uh, I started to really critically analyze not just what I believed, but why I believed it. And uh, I came up with some very scary answers. I'd sit down and I'd pray on them and uh, didn't really get much else in return. Mm. And uh, eventually I started reading up on philosophy writers, some of the classical philosophers like uh, Voltaire, people like that, um, Ingersoll. Uh, and I started watching debates with like Christopher Hitchens, and they really vocalized everything that I was thinking much better than I could ever hope to. Uh, so... Uh, people that were my theist peers, they started to challenge me on my views and uh, I would challenge them in return and we'd have little debates and I was really unsatisfied with some of the answers they offered and uh, it's been about two years now and I, that I've come to terms with calling myself an atheist, as I've defined it. I don't make the definitive claim that no God exists. I'm an agnostic atheist. Well, how about what are the major hurdles? So, I mean, again, so we've emailed back and forth. There's been lots of great questions on history and Bible problems. But if you were to look at some of the major hurdles you have or have had, what would you say those are? Uh, I'd say, first of all, reading the Bible. I don't know if it's out of context or not, but there were some passages in there that just, uh, one, didn't make sense, or two, I drew a lot of parallels between it and other religions. And uh, I'd say, had I been born, say, a thousand years ago, or more than that, I'd be believing in either Thor or Zeus, and who knows, maybe a thousand years from now they'll be worshipping L. Ron Hubbard in, in Scientology <laughs> as a main, uh-huh. mainstream religion. Um, and one of the issues that I had was, if, if all these people were born in the wrong time, in the wrong place, how could a loving and all-knowing responsible God allow all these people to be outside of, not just knowledge, but outside of grace? Hmm. Good, and what, uh, what would you say, you know, Part of what I say every time we have somebody of different belief here on stage, I say, I think conversion's a great thing. Because mm-hmm. if you're pursuing truth, I want you to convert me out of my delusion that I think God exists and that Jesus and, you know, magic Holy Spirit's living in me. You know, if that's not true, I want somebody to convert me to truth. So I love the idea of having dialogues that are respectful, but where we're trying to convert each other. I like that. And if you were to try and convert us, maybe in the sense of what are the benefits you found of being an atheist? Okay. Well, as I was saying to the percussionist of the band, we were talking a little bit earlier. Um, one of the best things that I agree with about that statement is if you enter a debate and you either have your beliefs disproven or you have them confirmed, it's a win-win situation. So that's why I always try to have these discussions whenever I can. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, atheism wasn't a goal. It, wasn't a, it, it was more of a result of what I think would benefit this entire country and, that is, and, and mankind in general, and that's critical thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, skepticism in all things, government, education, spirituality, and every now and then turning those critical uh, thoughts back inward. Why do I believe what I do? What benefit is it to myself and those around me? Um, question everybody, loved ones, bosses, community leaders, and find out why things are and why they should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And last one you talked about, I know, when we discussed was the idea of rather than being accountable to some theoretical Casper the Friendly Ghost in the Sky, that you felt like accountability to the culture of people was a benefit mm-hmm. to you as well. I've got seven billion other people that my actions are responsible for right now. So, yeah. uh, And everything we do affects somebody around you. Our beliefs don't exist in a vacuum. 
They affect our actions, and our actions affect those around us. Mm -hmm. um, and I think one of the benefits is I make a more solid link to causality with what I do in my decisions. I no longer rely on, on uh, an almighty being to make things right for me. Yeah. Good. Well, I promised Matt we'd make uh, this short for today. I've invited him to come back at any time and do maybe a 40-minute discussion where he can either put me in the hot seat or we can go back and forth. But I wanted to make sure he knew that here at Horizon we respect uh, and have great respectful dialogue. So I would love it if we could give Matt a warm thank you for coming in today and be brave enough to share his thoughts. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. One oh, more thing. Yeah, one more thing. I just wanted to, I wanted to say how welcome I felt here. Everybody's been very kind to me in here. And... Um, also, if anybody has any questions for me, anything that I didn't properly address today, come up to me afterwards. Uh, I'll give you my email address if you want to give me an argument of some kind or a question. I'm all, I'm all ears. Awesome. Thanks, Thanks for your again, time. Matt. Appreciate it. Now, wherever you are in your journey, you may be at a place where you have, you're an agnostic atheist, or you may be at a place where you think there's a God, but you're not sure how that God could be the God of the Bible. Um, Maybe you know who Francis Collins is. Francis Collins is one of the scientists who uh, developed the Human Genome Project, un untangled and discovered all the details related to human uh, DNA. He also is Obama's uh, chief science officer. And he went on a journey similar. He was a committed atheist, and he began to go through a journey of finding facts, which led him to a little different place. Let's watch. I mean, there are all sorts of ways that one might come face to face with this question of, is there a God? But a particularly interesting one is sitting at the bedside of someone who is facing death and imagining yourself in that position. And I couldn't help but think, I don't want to be in that position and not have some better sense of the answer. But when you're a medical student facing death every day on the wards, it's pretty hard. And that's really what happened to me that afternoon. A combination of realizing I hadn't done the hard work that I should to answer a really important question and a realization that my life was not going to go on forever. And uh, Billy Graham, once uh, talking to somebody about faith, had the response coming back from that young person, well, you know, I've got a long time to live. I'm the sort of person who doesn't study during the course. I wait and then I cram for exams. To which Billy Graham responded, gee, I hope you don't get a pop quiz. And I realized this is not something to put off. This is one of those questions that sooner or later you're going to have to address. And to pretend you've addressed it already is clearly not defensible. You've never given any serious consideration to the possibility that faith might be real. That day at uh, my patient's bedside started a journey for me, a journey that I thought would result in strengthening my atheism but to my surprise, resulted in my conversion. I was greatly assisted uh, by a pastor who lived down the road who I went and asked about all this and who gave me a copy of C.S. Lewis's wonderful book, Mere Christianity, because here was an Oxford scholar, a prodigiously developed intellect, who had been an atheist, was puzzled by what his friends who were believers were talking about, and set about to disprove them, only to find out that it went the other way, and he ultimately became one of the most strong, compelling Christian voices of the 20th century and resonates today. And so within those pages, I realized for the first time that one can come to belief on a rational basis and that, in fact, atheism is probably the least rational of all the choices. The assertion, as Chesterton would say, of a universal negative, which is a difficult thing to do in any circumstances, and that, in fact, 
given the many pointers that one sees around oneself in terms of the universe and it having a beginning and its fine-tuning in terms of the way in which all those constants that determine the behavior of matter and energy seem to have been set just in a certain very precise range to make life possible, uh, and many other things, including my beloved mathematics and why they actually work anyway to describe the universe, something that makes you think the creator must have been a mathematician. So again, you know, for, for Matt, he shared how uh, the rational process led him to a place of uh, you know, atheism. For, for Francis, it was a chance that his rationality led him to a place of belief. So where is that? So what I'd like to do is just look at some facts. And specifically, I mean, who cares what Chad says, right? I mean, he's paid to do this stuff. He's a pastor. I'm going to more times than not try and talk about people who've been on a journey, scientists, philosophers, from skepticism to faith, um, so that we can journey with them and find out what they discovered in their journey. But to do that, we're going to run through four experiments today because it's always fun to blow stuff up. And so let's head over to the uh, to the detonation station. Can we do that? Well, I've got some liquid nitrogen here with me, so we've got to put on our safety goggles and uh, make sure we're doing it. Don't try this at home. We're trained professionals here. Uh, liquid nitrogen is uh, working at minus, that's a good look, minus 390 degrees. We're going to pour a little liquid nitrogen out here into our pan. There we go. Nothing like some liquid nitrogen in church. The atmosphere is 70% nitrogen and 20% oxygen, so you don't need to... Actually, we need some more. You can never have too much liquid nitrogen, I always say. Let's pour some more liquid nitrogen in here. There we go. You know, uh, I think when you look at people of uh, faith and people of um, science, it almost seems like they're two extremes, right? If you're a person of faith, you think these people of religion make you cry, right? You cut them open, whatever comes out is a judgment, hypocrisy, makes you want to cry... And if you're a person of faith, you like the layers. You like to peel back things and discover what it's all about. And I think the idea of a person of faith jumping into the bucket of, uh, of, of faith or a person of uh, religion jumping into the, the bucket of reason, it's almost intimidating. I'm going to lose something. I'm, I'm going to lose something that was important to me. And yet over time, both people of faith and people of scientists have begun to wrestle with the implications of both the good and the bad that both bring to the table. For example, Huxley wrote a book uh, about 100 years ago, and as he began to read his book, it was about how science could really answer all of our questions. But just in two generations, his grandson, Huxley, began to wrestle with the great things science brought, but also how there was more philosophy or faith needed to add to it. He said, we're living now not in the delicious intoxication induced by the early successes of science, but in a rather grisly morning after when it has become apparent that what triumphant science has done hereto is to improve the means for achieving unimproved or actual deteriorated ends, which is sort of a big fancy way of saying, my grandfather said science would answer all my questions, and I love science, but I don't have answers to why I exist, why I want meaning and purpose, what happens really when I die. I I guess the answer is nothing, but that doesn't satisfy my soul. So he began to wrestle with the idea that that science by itself didn't answer everything he was looking for. He needed thinking and philosophy and something else to get what he wanted, to get what he was longing for. There's also been scientists who have shown that 
Now, the idea that the Big Bang came out of nothing has some scientific problems as well. In fact, two skeptics, uh, one by the name of uh, Hoyle and the other by the name of Chandra, who's a Buddhist, and they began to look at just the calculations of the human enzyme, just the details needed to make our enzymes work. And they calculated that the language needed to allow this to happen, just the, the mathematical probability of that occurring, was 1 to 10 to the 40,000th power. And they, not as Christians, not as people of faith, they conclude that evolution is impossible, meaning a big bang without a big banger, in an earthbound model of origins. Now, I think what's uh, helpful in that, as you're looking at your own hurdles toward faith and toward origins, is there's at least six views out there. And some people think there's only two. You know, you're an atheist or you're a young earther. Um, and so that seems like, well, I can't get from here to there. But here's the different views that are out there. Next slide. Under atheistic origins, you could be an eternity of the universe, meaning the universe has always existed, it just expands and contracts, but there's some math to address that. You could be a gradual Darwinist, which means evolution happens slowly over time, but God wasn't involved. You could recognize there's huge problems in the fossil record, like huge hundreds, thousands, millions of, uh, of fossil records missing between intermediates. We don't have a scale turning into a feather together, for example. And so punctuate equilibrium says that there were jumps, think of the movie X-Men, jumps in the evolutionary process, which is why we don't have those fossil records. And then we have what, what Chandra was just saying, is an earthbound model of evolution doesn't work, meaning we can't, we've never created life in a lab. We had to get the elements of life from outside, pan, spermia, seeded into our life. So again, as a, as, a, as a scientist, as a philosopher, you know, that is a, a good indication that we can't create life. We need it from someplace. But it really moves the buck for me. It's like saying, okay, well, life came from out there. Okay, well, how did they get it? Where did they get it from? What was the cause of that? So these are things that folks have wrestled with. And then on the theist view, you know, there are Buddhists, uh, there are Christians, there are uh, Muslims, there are people who practice Judaism who hold to progressive creation. They would say the world is billions of years old. It may have happened slowly. It may have happened fast. You don't have to have one view to be a believer in the Bible or God. So progressive creationists say, well, God had to start the Big Bang, or he had to be the one that created this punctuate equilibrium, or he had to be the one that seeded the panspermia. And then, of course, within the Christian thinking, there's also young earth, which says the earth's much younger than you think. So I say all that to say, wherever you are in your journey, just know there's lots of options out there to explore and to look into to help you in your journey toward faith. Because I think what happens many times is this. You know, again, you're that person that, uh, person of faith, a person of science, rather, and you think, boy, if I get serious about faith, I am going to lose my edge. Because it's no longer about facts. It's now uh, all about faith and, and the idea that faith is the absence of evidence. Well, faith is not the absence of evidence. That's called ignorance. But you think, boy, if I get serious about my faith, I'm going to suddenly have my, my rational mind shattered. Let's see if that'll work. There we go. And, and if you're a person of, uh, of faith and you go, oh, if I start looking into the facts, who knows? I may lose my faith. If your faith can't handle reasoning and questions, you know, maybe, maybe you need a different faith, right? And so that's why people of faith and reason can come together and say, thinking, questioning, dialoguing shouldn't shatter anything. It should strengthen the process. The second experiment I want to look at, uh, I want to talk about two skeptics who began to take on this idea of the eternity of the universe. They were mathematicians, and they said, truly, the math points that we had to have a beginning. It couldn't have been the eternal universe. Here's one uh, writer says, it's said that an argument is what convinces reasonable men, 
and proof is what it takes to convince even an unreasonable man. With the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There's no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. So he's saying as you wind the universe down, it's expanding and twisting. It had an original singularity or point. So the universe couldn't have been eternal. There's another atheist who writes about the universe's ability to produce everything out of nothing. And I love this. It's sort of an honest approach to say what does need its origin explained is the concrete universe itself. It does perform the ultimate bootstrapping trick. It creates itself ex nihilo, out of nothing, or at any rate, out of something that is well nigh indistinguishable from nothing at all. So what he's saying is, you know, if you don't have a, a big banger or an uncaused cause, then you have to get everything out of nothing. And that brings us to our second experiment, because I want to look at that idea of what started or what created the Big Bang. So again, what we're going to do is add a little bit more liquid nitrogen, because you can never have too much. And uh, imagine everything, and by the way, we don't use latex balloons in this building because of uh, uh, people's allergies, except for today. So in case you didn't get the memo, now's the time to run. Um, so imagine all the viruses that we have you know, came from this, this beginning. All the animals we have. There's a dog there. Let's see what else we got here. We got, uh, here's a human being. He lost his foot because I didn't have quite enough to do him, so we'll put him in there. Uh, who else we got in here? Oh, we got love. So concepts, beyond just the biological uh, connections that make you feel like you're in love, is there a real concept beyond our chemistry that says love and honor are real things that are not just the byproduct of our, of our chemicals? What about like Francis Schaeffer, uh, not Francis Schaeffer, Francis Collins talked about, you know, our DNA and how it all got put together. As you begin to put all this stuff, it had to go back into one place, one singularity, you have the atoms with all the electrons that spin around them and all the intricacies of the forces. Do you like that? In the nights I worked on that the other day. The strong nuclear force and the weak nuclear force and the pull of gravity and all those ratios that made all of that possible had to go into place. And all of these things, here's the pink panther. You know, I, I'm not sure why I did him, but we'll put the panther in here. So here's the pink panther. You know, he's got to go into that. So you have all of the universe... It has to be compressed down to one dot or singularity. But the question still begs itself is, how do you get something out of nothing? How did you get from the moment when there was nothing to all the laws, all the pieces, parts that make this possible? Well, let's see. I think we need a little bit of uh, science music. Let's see if we can bring all this to life here, right? A, a source or process that create everything we have, which brings up some questions I think worth asking, which is not only where did the components and details come from for chemistry, for biology, for the energy, but where did the laws come from that govern the explosion, gravity, nuclear force? Where did all this animation come from? Now, if you talk to Stephen Hawking, he was uh, quoted recently, he said, this whole idea of a god is totally unnecessary and it's a smoke and mirrors trick. He says it this way. 
He says, this does not have to be a once in a million event. This can easily be explained how we get everything from nothing. How does he say it? You don't need the serendipity of a divine hand. The Big Bang was the inevitable consequence of the laws of physics. Because there are laws such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing. Why the universe exists, why we exist. It's not necessary to invoke God to light the blue touch paper and set the universe going. So he says the laws of gravity explain how we get all of the components, things that we can't touch that are not chemical or or material like love or honor, and things like viruses and biology and things. But look at his phrase. He says uh, spontaneous creation. Well, this idea, not from a cosmologist or a physicist, but from a biologist, was very popular during Louis Pasteur's years. It was the idea that you could you know, throw some rags in the corner and it would produce mice. Well, Louis Pasteur was a really committed follower of God and Christ, and he began to say, no, you cannot get life from non-life. You can throw whatever waves, whatever circumstances you want at a rock, and you're never going to move from the organic to the inorganic. He, gen- he produced what we now know as the law, well, it's not really a law, biogenesis. Life comes from life. He did that through the broth experiment. He took some, some uh, beakers and he put broth in it. And he found that those that were exposed to the air, the germs in the air could seed life into it. You could get life from life from the germs. But we had another beaker that actually had a, an S-curve in it. So you couldn't get the germs in there. And this one didn't produce life. And he spoke against this idea that it's even possible to get life from non-life. It was very critical in his, in his understanding. You know, this is a brilliant guy. If you haven't studied much of Louis Pasteur, he said, science is not in contradiction to my faith. In fact, when I study the creation, when I study nature, he said, I am in wonder of the one who made it and created it. Here's the next quote. Go ahead and put that on the screen. And this is a guy who, as he studied and got serious about science, his faith expanded. And this is a guy who invented germ theory, made the first vaccine against rabies, vaccine for diphtheria, vaccinated sheep anthrax, and, he, and, and pasteurization of milk, he came to the conclusion that you cannot get life from non-life. So if we have life in this world, it must have come from something that was alive. So with that thought in mind, I want to back up to the 19th century. In the 19th century, there was a, a philosopher who uh, began to look at this whole idea of how do you get life from non-life. In order to do that, we need... Some more liquid nitrogen, of course. So what we're going to do is uh, I want to look beyond biology. Let's look specifically at the product of the air. As I mentioned already, the air is 70% nitrogen, the air we're breathing right now, 20% oxygen, and then a handful of other things, helium and smog and stuff like that. Uh, here in Cincinnati, it's mostly allergies you know, in the air. Yeah, we definitely need a lot for this one. So you think about the precision needed to have air that we can breathe. 70 to 20. If I stuck my head and breathed deeply into this thing for you know, 30 breaths, I'd pass out. I won't do it, though. So you just think about that one detail of the comp- composition needed for our oxygen or, or our atmosphere to breathe. Well, then you think about all the precision things that had to be done at the beginning of the universe to allow this to happen. In fact, you know, you know what we need? We're going to try and produce right here before you a real cloud Try and fill up the whole stage with a real cloud. We're going to show what happens when a warm front confronts a cold front. Are you ready? I need some, some cloud music. You any cloud music for me? How about smoky music? 
Some smoke music would be good. Okay, yeah, I'm liking that. Remind you of some gigs back in the day, right yeah. there. <laughs> so here's so the precision need for the auction, for example. Here's a premise in philosophy: everything that exists has a beginning, and, and most people will affirm that premise and accept the universe. So everything has a beginning. The, the egg has a chicken. The chicken has an egg. Except the universe doesn't need one. A philosopher in the 19th century, by the name of Arthur Oppenheimer, calls the idea of rejecting the universe having a beginning the taxi cab fallacy. You can't start with the premise that all things have a beginning and then get to your desired destination except the universe and eliminate the original premise. Just because the universe is big doesn't mean it didn't have a beginning because all things that exist have a beginning. I can't see my notes here. This is good stuff. In responding to, John, uh, to uh, Stephen Hawking, John Lennox is a philosopher. He said, well, can't gravity or the laws of gravity or the universe explain why we don't need a creator? And I love what he said. He said, consider a jet plane. You don't say either someone made it or the laws of physics. You wouldn't say that. Instead, you would say you need both the agent of creation, Frank Whittle, and the laws of physics to fly it. Discovering the laws doesn't negate the creator. In fact, John Polkinghorne, another great book if you want to read it, is a physicist, and he began to study in his journey from skepticism to faith the physics of the universe. How did all of this come to be? How did this giant cloud or big bang that produced who we are, how precise did it need to be? So he just took one ratio, and it was the expanse ratio of the universe. He said, the picosecond, which is the time it takes for light to pass through a human hair, the picosecond between the Big Bang and the second picosecond before it had to be so precise just in the expanse ratio of the universe. He said that it would be like throwing a dart 20 billion light years across the universe and hitting a one inch by one inch target bullseye. And he turned to his class and said, he's an Englishman, he said, friends, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Which is his English understated way of saying it's not real plausible that you could get these ratios from sure, random, blind chance. In a great book, Robbie Zacharias talked about how we all are looking for evidence. In the real face of atheism, he lays out a series of explanations. He talked about when the Russians went up to, um, to space, they, got out of, they looked outside into space and they said, I don't see God anywhere, no evidence. To which one uh, skeptic once said, well, if they'd taken off their helmet, they would have seen him very clearly. It's a little snarky, isn't it? Yeah, a little snarky. But it's interesting that, that the Russians went to space, looked around and said, no evidence. The U.S. astronauts went up and actually said, there's so much evidence of God. And they read from Genesis 1-1 when we first went up into space. In the beginning, God created the heavens and, and the earth. So it's interesting that two people can look at the exact same circumstance and come to very different conclusions. 
So as you're on your journey, we want to respect each other's journey, whether you're still saying, well, you didn't prove anything to me, or whether you're saying, oh, you know what, I've never really thought of that, or at least I want to pick up some books to begin to explore that, because those people seem smart. If they came to that conclusion, then maybe I could come to a conclusion like that, or at least I want to give a little more credence to the idea that a smart person could believe that kind of thing. Well, one last experiment. This one I couldn't find a way to do safely. Um, this was all safe. What are you talking? It's all safe. You know, um, the idea that all the stuff had to be uh, exploded out of the universe in a way that was safe, that we could live, is pretty remarkable. So I was going to get a burn barrel and put 3,000 ping pong balls in it. If you dump liquid nitrogen into a two-liter bottle, it expands at a certain ratio, at which you have time to drop it into the burn barrel, put the ping pong balls back on top, and get out of the way. I couldn't get that timing down quite right. Which again shows, even with research, even with scientists, even with all access to knowledge that I had, to do it safely, to produce an environment that was conducive to your life, was difficult. Let alone to do that for the whole universe. So here's what it would have looked like if we'd blown up 3,000 ping pong balls. Let's watch. And mostly the programming team didn't want to pick up the ball, so that was a real issue, too. You know, if you are interested, there's another guy who I actually met. Uh, he's a friend. I mean, we've met each other several times. Uh, his name's Hugh Ross. He's an astrophysicist. He was a skeptic, unconvinced, and he was a cosmologist. And he began to journey from his atheism to the belief in God by studying the universe. He's got a great book called The Creator in the Cosmos. He began to look at the parameters needed for life. He said there's at least 322 from the stars. And the, the chance of that occurring, he calculated, was a 10 to the 304,000th power. But he said, let's just reduce that to just the 33 characteristics needed uh, to make life possible. And he said, even that was 10 to the 37th power. And for him, that became very compelling evidence that he could believe in someone who created the world, which became his first step toward believing the God of the Bible. Now, to give an idea what that number means, he said 10 to the 37th power would be like covering the whole North American continent with dimes as high as the moon, painting one dime red, mixing it up, blindfolding someone, and at random they pick and reach through the dimes and pull out the red one. So his conclusion, again, this doesn't have to be your conclusion, you believe, believe whatever you want at Horizon. His conclusion was it took more faith to believe that that was a random process than to believe that there was some intentionality of a creative, rational being behind the process. And that might be why Paul, in the book of Acts, shows up, and Paul says something pretty compelling. He's talking to a group of people who do not believe what he believes. He's very respectful in his dialogue. And he says, I can perceive you're very religious. You're pursuing truth. He says, I see you even have a, an object of worship to your unknown God. And then here's his explanation. Of, if, if there's a God, here's what he ought to be like. Oh, there we go. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temples. If, if God is just something that shows up in buildings we build, or he's the rock thing we created, or, or he's the statue we made, if you can make your creator, he's probably not your creator, is what he's saying. You can't be the cause of your uncaused cause. Then he says, if there's a God, he wouldn't be worshipped by men's hands. He wouldn't need us, because that would make him God. He's got to be self-sustaining, as if he needed anything. Since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. So if there's a God, he has to be the source of life, the source of rationality, the source of what we need. So I would just encourage you, wherever you are in your journey, to begin to dive into this stuff and begin to ask questions of yourself for the sake of your own journey and those of your friends. 
fact, uh, well, here's how I'd look at it. A lot of times it can be overwhelming, all the different hurdles that are out there. And there, I could make, show you Bible passages that are just very, very problematic. So I want you to think about this. What is your next hurdle? Of all the hurdles you have to your journey into a deeper connection with God or faith, what's your next hurdle and how could we help you clear it? I want to give you some books up on the screen. But to think of it that way, which, how do we lower your next hurdle? Not all the hurdles, but just the next one, the main one in front of you. How could I lower that, not eliminate it, but just lower it enough that I could clear it to take the next step in my journey? That's where we're about as a church. Here's some books that might be helpful to you. The first book um, is something that looks terrible because I scanned it wrong apparently, so don't worry about that one. Um, <laughs> wow. Uh, the second one is The Case for the Creator by Lee Strobel. Uh, second one is The Case for Christ by uh, Lee Strobel. The End of Reason by Ravi Zacharias, and then The Language of God by Francis Collins we talked about. And actually, this first one, I remember, is Surprised by Faith. Don Byerly is an Arctic explorer. He's been here on our stage before talking about his journey. So if you want to jot those books down to help you in your journey, Surprised by Faith by Don Byerly, the one that looks like somebody's been smoking out of this thing, Uh, The Case for the Creator, The Case for Christ, The End of Reason by Ravi Zacharias, and The Language of God. Well, let's jump back in to Francis's story. So Francis, who wrote this book, The Language of God, as he studied the human DNA, and he came to the conclusion that it spoke to a God. He talks about how he got from that moment of skepticism to the moment of God and what pushed him over the edge. Let's watch. One uh, wonderful, beautiful afternoon, as I was now a medical resident, and one of those rare moments where I had a little time off, I went hiking in the Cascade Mountains in the northwest of the United States, and I had that experience that we occasionally are given of being cleared of all of the distractions that otherwise get in the way of thinking about what really matters. And as I walked up that trail, I turned a corner, and there had been sort of a steep cliff beside me so I couldn't see what would be on the other side. And as I turned that corner, there was a sheer cliff face in front of me at the top of which uh, there must have been a small trickle of moisture that had been trickling all summer and probably there for hundreds of thousands of years. And because we were up in the uh, colder climate, as that trickle came down the cliff, it froze. And what I saw in front of me, I'd never seen anything like this before, glinting in the sun, was this frozen waterfall, a frozen waterfall that actually came down in three cascades I'm not trying to say that this was intentional, uh, divine spiritual uh, symbolism of the Trinity, but it was interesting to see this image, and it just took my breath away. But it caught me at a moment uh, where I realized that this really was an opportunity to set aside all of those distractions and to ask the question that we all have to ask at some point, do I believe in God? And I found that all of my resistance fell away. It just was a sense of, I am so wanting uh, to give myself to this love that God represents and that has reached out to me and I feel it near to me and I want to be embraced in that love for all time. And that was the afternoon. I fell on my knees. I said, this is something I want, God Come and be my Savior, Christ, and change my life. I can't do it by myself, and I'm sure tomorrow I'm going to think I was nuts, but today, this is real. This is the most real thing that's ever happened. 
The inquisitive view of the nature surroundings provides compelling evidence that a precise and ingenious creator is at work all around us. Dangerous intersections such as this one behind the mice galaxies are common in space. If our galaxy had encountered another large galaxy at such proximity, we wouldn't even exist. Yet the Milky Way needed to absorb multiple dwarf galaxies to develop the unique spiral structure that sustains life. This fine-tuning suggests that God has something very specific in mind when he drew up the universe. An enormous solar flare erupted from the sun's surface back in 2010. Eight Earths would fit across the flaring region shown here. And yet, despite its intensity, this flare does not destroy us. We can only marvel at the intricacy of God's design. The sun, despite its immense heat, is a remarkable stable energy source for life on Earth. The Kilauea volcano produces rivers of molten rock that originate deep underground. Plate tectonic activities such as erupting lava are the finely tuned methods that God employs to build continents, recycle nutrients, and maintain water supplies. Increasingly, engineers are turning to biological systems for inspiration as they develop new technologies. The poster child for nature-inspired designs is the gecko's foot, which is inspiring new types of adhesives. The design is so purposeful and inspiring that it defies evolutionary theories of randomness. Nanotechnologists are working to build computers inspired by DNA. This effort is possible because of the striking parallels between DNA architecture and those of computer systems. The similarity of human designs and biochemical systems can only be suggest that life stems from the work of a divine engineer. Abstract mathematical equations eloquently match and explain the very nature of the physical universe itself, as seen in the structure of this chambered nautilus. It's not a huge leap to view God as a great mathematician who calculated both the physical and conceptual realms of reality. The 350-foot-tall redwoods of California are the tallest trees that the laws of physics will permit. Their great height provides a barrier to fog banks rolling in from the Pacific Ocean. It allows the northern California forests to capture much more moisture than they would otherwise. And as a result, all forest life benefits from God's design of these tall trees. You know, we can crunch the numbers, we can test theories in a lab, send probes into outer space. We can research, we can calculate, we can analyze, we can calibrate. But when we stop and wake up to what's around us, we simply see God. Thanks, guys. And thank you, Chad and Matt. Thanks for coming and sharing this time with us. We appreciate that. Horizon is a place for you to explore. And we want it to be a place where you can ask questions and receive answers that move you along in your journey. I hope you'll join us for this whole series the next few weeks. In fact, if you came prepared to give, offering boxes are out in the atrium. If you, this is your first time at Horizon. Let me encourage you uh, to drop by the hearth room, third door on, the, door on the left. We'd love to put a name with a face, and it's a great place to ask your questions down there as well. And the last thing is a reminder that a man's heart was built, is, is built for adventure. The adventure a man pursues determines his fulfillment in life. If you want to find out more about that, you can check out in the... A program, a men's ministry is starting in about three weeks, and I'd love to chat with you about it. Thanks for coming, and we'll see you back next week.